We are glad to make all of our Jcast Network podcasts free for our listeners. However, they are not free to produce and host. Please consider making a donation to Jcast Network to help support our work by visiting jcastnetwork.org slash donate. Thanks for your support. You are listening to Pop Torah with Rabbi Iznopf and Olitsky, a Jcast Network podcast. For more information about other Jcast Network podcasts, please visit jcastnetwork.org. Welcome to Pop Torah, the podcast where we look at pop culture from a Jewish perspective and look at Judaism through the lens of pop culture. As always, we are your hosts. I am Rabbi Michael Knopf. And I am Rabbi Jesse Olitsky. And today we are joined by a very special guest. We have with us Leah Solomon, the Chief Education Officer for Encounter. Hi, Leah. How are you? Great. How are you? <laughs> Good, thanks. And Leah is joining us from Jerusalem. Is that right? That is right. Yeah. So uh, uh, Leah has uh, lived in uh, Israel since 1999 and um, Encounter is an extraordinary organization that both Jesse and I um, have been involved with in the past. Um, I, I consider it a, a great blessing to have uh, participated in Encounter programs uh, before. Uh, they've been transformational for me. If anybody's listening who uh, finds themselves uh, in Israel and uh, has an opportunity to uh, travel with Encounter to the West Bank, um, I encourage you to do so. We both, I think, encourage you to do so. Um, Encounter uh, uh, serves as its uh, mission to bring American Jews into encounter, into uh, contact with uh, with Palestinians uh, living in the West Bank, folks that um, Israelis and American Jews tend not to uh, be in much contact with or have much experience with and to understand and to learn what the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and the dynamics between um, Israelis and Palestinians looks like um, on uh, the other side of the green line. Um, it's an extraordinary organization. Can't wait to talk to Leah a little bit more about it, but we're going to frame the conversation uh, today uh, talking about the new HBO Max movie, Oslo. Uh, Jesse, you want to tell us a little bit about Oslo? Sure. Um, Israel has certainly been on our minds and the minds of the uh, American Jewish community. And I would say uh, the relationship between Israelis and Palestinians has been on the minds of much of the world over the past month since uh, the most violent conflict with Hamas broke out about a month ago, uh, most violent since 2014. Uh, and coincidentally, or most appropriately, uh, two Jews, uh, Steven Spielberg and Mark Platt, produced this movie Oslo for HBO Films and came out so timely, reflecting on the secret negotiations that led to the signing of the Oslo Accords almost 30 years ago. Um, it really gave me chills when I watched this film uh, for a number of reasons. One, uh, because at its core, it was about encounter. It was about Palestinians, um, representatives from the PLO, specifically um, Abu Ala, uh, sitting down with uh, Jewish Israelis um, and the relationship between them and, and the intensity of somebody like Uri Savir or, or the uh, intensity of um, the, the uh, legal advisor, um, Yoel Singer, at the time and um, that dynamic, that relationship, but also how at the beginning, 
the initial encounter and the initial relationship between the representatives of the PLO and of Israel, because it was illegal for Israelis at the time and the Israeli government to meet with Palestinians, uh, was professors of economics. Uh, Yair Hirschfeld, and when Abu Allah meets him for the first time and says, you are my first Jew, um, it, it gave me chills when I saw that, that it was real people, not government officials, but really real people who are meeting for the first time, and how the movie acknowledged that, well, America was trying to lead the way in negotiations, and certainly Clinton had the signing of the Oslo Accords and the Rose Garden and all that. Um, it was this back channel in Oslo, started by what well, Mona... Uh, played by Ruth Wilson, um, was a diplomat in the State Department in Norway. It was her husband, uh, I'm not sure how to pronounce his name, uh, Terje or, or Terry, um, that he, he was- Terry, I think. Terry, right? He, 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 was, he was running you know, an NGO. He was a private citizen, also bringing together private citizens. There were no- um, right, limos, right? They, they were in the back of, of his you know, two-door car uh, going off into a, a very foreign place, drinking together, breaking bread together. And that's really at, at its core was about building relationships. There were some really tense moments, but it was all about building relationships and understanding each other's perspectives. Most heartbreaking was the end of the film when there was the archival footage of the signing of the Oslo Accords in the Rose Garden, um, the assassination of Yitzhak Rabin after a peace rally by Yigal Amir, and then um, saying uh, that enough blood and enough tears, and then the statement by Arafat uh, after Rabin was assassinated, after Rabin was murdered. I, I remember when um, Arafat paid a shiva call to, to Leah Rabin, to Yitzhak Rabin's widow, uh, the first time he ever stepped foot in, in, in Israel um, to pay a shiva call. And it really spoke, both of them spoke about the sacrifices the other was making uh, for the sake of peace. I think back to my belief and my thought process as an adolescent during the Oslo Accords and when Rabin was assassinated, um, Mike and I were teenagers in Israel for the summer um, during the Camp David Accords and, and where we are now. Uh, and the movie really brought back a lot of that uh, with the backdrop of what was going on uh, between Israel and Palestinians in this moment and how far we remo removed we are from that moment. So Leah, maybe we could just start by uh, uh, saying, you know, what did you, what did you think of the movie and, and what did it bring up for you? Yeah. So first of all, thank you so much for having me on your podcast. It's a privilege to be in conversation. Um, you know, one of the first lines early on in the movie um, that really stood out for me, that sort of framed the whole movie for me was when Abu Allah is in the room with Mona. He hasn't met any of the Israelis yet. He's just about to meet his first Israeli. And, you know, they're sort of talking. He's a little suspicious of what she's trying to get him to do. And he says, you're on our side, as in Mona, you're on, you're on our Palestinian side. And her response is, and theirs, and theirs. I'm also, I'm on your side and I'm on their side. And the reason that stood out for me so much, I mean, watching this movie, right? It's a little bit, it's sort of, it's very sad as you, as you mentioned, Jesse, right? Because we know that ultimately, while the Accords did change the landscape, Right? We are still living in a landscape that's set by Oslo. 
areas A, B, and C. They didn't get into this, but I was noticing it when he talks about garbage, right? When they talk about garbage and um, how, you know, he's like, why are we getting into these details, right? But that, that movie actually got into the details. We're still living with the way that it's set up. But what so stood out to me about that you're on our side and theirs is the idea that the only way that we're ever going to reach a durable, just solution is if it works for everyone. There's no way that, that was what I think stood out so much. And ultimately they were trying to do that. They didn't succeed, but that truth is still so important to all of our discourse. And we can talk about this more, but I think it's a real sign of why the polarization is so harmful. Why the idea of going into this, which so many of us hold, so many Jews, American and Israeli, and for that matter, Palestinians approach this as a zero sum game, is that that approach is doomed to fail. And I think um, that moment for me, um, yeah, that moment for me really brought that out. And you know, what I think is so hard about the film and connecting to today is that the film deemed the PLO, uh, which became the PA, right, the the official uh, voice of the Palestinian people. Uh, and yet in uh, the dynamic today, we have the PA in the West Bank uh, who has been in control uh, for, uh, or at least Fatah has been in control for quite a long time, canceling the most recent elections again. Uh, and then you have Hamas uh, in control in Gaza. And well, it's easy to talk about Israelis and Palestinians. Those are two very different dynamics. I'm wondering, uh, as uh, representative of an organization that that takes Jewish educators and leaders to the West Bank, to East Jerusalem, uh, to meet with Palestinian activists, um, how do you teach about those two very different dynamics? Yeah, so I, I guess I would... I'd start by saying this. Hamas is a very important player. And I think we have seen important meaning influential, not that I like them, <laughs> but we have to understand them. We have to understand why it is that Palestinians, especially in the last two months, I think there's been a shift. Um, they've actually gained power over the last, I don't know if power, but influence, which is power. Um, Fata, I think that I saw some data know, saying- PA and the PLO, I was just going to say, I think I saw some data saying that they uh, grew significantly in popularity among Palestinians uh, uh, during and in the aftermath of the most recent conflict. Absolutely. And I think it's important to try to understand why. I mean, this again, this is our work, right? I'm not Palestinian. I can say what I have heard from Palestinians, but it, it just this highlights why it's so important to hear from Palestinians themselves and not just from Hamas and not just from the PA, Fatah, PLO, which we don't need to get into, but they all still exist. And Abu Mazen is the head of all three of them. Um, he's the head of the PLO, he's the head of the PA, and he's the head of Fatah. Um, but I and, I, and I think those dynamics are very important to understand. I think it's also important to say that they are very dynamic. There are, you know, we, we tend to think to think of them as like, um, this idea that reality as it is, is reality as it's going to be, but it's it's very dynamic. And there are things I think that Israel can do and, and other, you know, America to support Hamas gaining popularity. And there are things we can do to mitigate that. Um, we could dive into that a little more. Um, Fatah, I think, is seen by most Palestinians that I know as increasingly irrelevant. Um, but in any case, they're, they're essentially like, 
um, they're, they're mostly like a municipal government, right? The PA. Um, you know, you have a situation where the prime minister, the head of the, of ostensibly the head of the state of Palestine needs to ask Israel for a permit to leave his own city to be able to get to another, you know, to get to a checkpoint, to get to another city that he's ostensibly the prime minister of. These are, um, he's not, he doesn't have a lot of power. But what I think is most important about this dynamic of who are the leaders and, and you know, what is kind of the split between Fatah and the PA on the one hand and Hamas is the other is, who are all the other people we're not hearing from and what is their power, right? So Hamas kind of hijacked the, the discourse over the last few months. But this recent, Michael, you were saying before, you're not sure what to call it. Is it a war? Is it a mini conflict of escalation? I've been calling it an escalation. It started in Jerusalem. And it actually started in many ways with nonviolent protests. You had nonviolent protests at Damascus Gate when the Israeli police decided to close the whole Damascus Gate area during Ramadan and not allow people to gather on the steps, which is a, a cultural gathering place. And so there were young activists without any leaders, because there's no Palestinian leadership in Jerusalem, because the PA is not allowed to have a presence there. So it was all young activists, nonviolent protests at Damascus Gate. And the same in Sheikh Jarrah, which I'm sure, you know, which was even before that, really wasn't connected. It's sort of coincidental that these things happened at the same time. Um, but that to me is what's so interesting about the Palestinian landscape and what's more really important for us to understand is that the leadership represents the leadership. They don't necessarily represent any one of the 4 million Palestinians living between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean. Um, and that to me is where I think the, the future lies. Um, and we, we can talk more about that. Yeah, well, I think you can arguably say that about uh, Israel too, right? Where you have um, a government that you know is um, uh, you know cobbled together through coalition, um, and you know, therefore by coalition, you know, uh, arguably represents the majority of Israelis. But you know, prime, the Netanyahu now, uh, all the more so, uh, Naftali Bennett, in, in some ways, you know, represents a very small minority. Of, uh, of of Israelis. And so you have, a, I think, a dynamic on both sides where the leadership doesn't necessarily um, reflect the, um, the, the, the will, maybe even the interests of, of all the people. I wanted to drill down on something that you said um, a, a few moments ago, because I think that I, I certainly felt it in this most recent conflict, but it's true, I think, you know, whenever there's uh, an eruption of violence between um, Israel and Palestine, um, that uh, I feel this within the American Jewish community. I, I, I suspect it's uh, present within the is within the Israeli Jewish community and, and within Israel itself, and probably in Palestine too. That there's this uh, impulse, this pressure to to you know choose and stand with your side, um, and and you know rally for your side, stand with your side, support your side um, at all costs, right? And and to support your side means um, to. Uh, diminish the the significance of the cost of the conflict on the other side to diminish collateral damage, to diminish casualties on the other side as, you know, well, it, it they wouldn't have that if it wasn't their fault in the first place, you know, that sort of thing. And Rabbi Sharon Brown said a couple of weeks ago uh, when asked, are you pro-Israel or pro-Palestinians? Her answer was, I reject the premise of the question. Right, right. Um, and, and and she also in that sermon quoted uh, Leah's uh, beautiful writing from uh, over the past few weeks, uh, which which has been you know such a 
um, such a an, an uplift and inspiration to me, and I know to so many others. And, I, and that's really kind of what I wanted to ask you because you, you you mentioned that um, uh, one of the themes of the movie is that um, that you know really uh, the 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 process of peace, the pursuit of peace, uh, the um, to you know the two state solution, whatever it is, that it actually benefits. Uh, both people, right? We don't need to actually choose a side uh, because to be on both, uh, you, we should be on uh, on both people's sides. It's not zero sum. So I'm wondering, I, I think that that to me um, is more obvious in the Palestinian direction than the Israeli direction. And I wonder if you could reflect a little bit um, on that. You know, so for example, right? It seems clear to me how, you know, uh, 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 national self-determination, sovereignty, peace with, uh, with Israel um, would benefit uh, the Palestinians. But Israel, you know, you go there and it's, you know, the economy's booming, people are in cafes, you know, uh, it, it's hard to see. And I think that, you know, that, that's evident in the Israeli political process where the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is like way down on the list of issues that Israelis are voting on. Israelis seem to not see um, uh, the peace process the conflict between Israel, Israelis and Palestinians as an issue that impacts their lives, right? There's no incentive uh, to make it better. So it feels on the ground kind of zero sum for Israelis. Yes, yes, yes to everything you said. So, uh, well, I want to start with um, just kind of like an operating assumption for me, which I think I imagine we share in some ways, but I feel like it's important to say. I'm sort of starting from the operating assumption that um, Israel sovereign Jewish state is the most important, the greatest project of the Jewish people in the last 2000 years. And really before that too, because we didn't really have, you know, the concept of a sovereign state didn't really mean anything 2000 years ago, right? This is like a huge experiment of the Jewish people and probably the most experiment, most important experiment we've ever engaged in. And the corollary to that, I would argue, is that the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is the most important challenge. And I would even say an existential challenge. We tend to think of, you know, a lot of times I'll hear people saying like Hamas is an existential challenge. Hamas is not an existential challenge. It's a big problem. They're killing people, but you know, they, they gave it their best shot. They shot 4,000 rockets at us and they successfully killed 12 people. That's not an existential threat. That's a danger that we need to keep in check, which is what the government has been doing for years not terribly effectively, but they're not, you know, they're managing it. They're not actually trying to address it in any long-term way. I think you are, but, but I do think that the existential challenge here, and this you touched on, Michael, is what does it mean for us to be a sovereign people in our own land? And part of sovereignty, I mean, sovereignty brings with it many, many challenges that a non-sovereign people doesn't have to worry about, right? And that's true for any sovereign state. You have to worry about garbage and you have to worry about the police force and you, have, you, know, you, have, you have to run a state. Um, not just all about the ideas, but one of the biggest problems that any sovereign state has to deal with is how do you treat the minorities in your midst? And that speaks to who you are as a nation, who you are as a people. We are surviving, Israel's surviving, and we're not going anywhere anytime soon. In many ways, we have the upper hand. But I think if we really want to, you know, kind of live up to who we want to be as a people, as a nation, living with integrity, living with morality, really flourishing, not 
constantly looking over our shoulder. I mean, I, I have three young boys. The oldest isn't so young anymore. He's 14. He's going to be drafted to the army in four years less, actually. With two brothers not far behind. Like, I don't want to live a life where it's sort of, you know, we kind of just accept as a norm that every few years there's going to be a war. Every few years, maybe, you know, tens or even hundreds of Israelis will get killed and we'll kill a, a few thousand Palestinians. That's not flourishing. That's sort of accepting. And I actually remember Bibi Netanyahu, a very, a speech that made a huge impact on me in 2015. He was asked and he said, yes, we will live by the sword forever. We will live by the sword forever. That is our destiny. And I think Israelis have kind of internalized that. Um, and I would like to break out of that. And that zero sum game is exactly that, right? If we accept that it's a zero sum game and we kind of say it's either us or them, we're doomed to both of us lose. The only way we can shift the narrative, we, we really need a paradigm shift to be able to say, this was actually in the movie, um, but one of the, I think it was Abu Allah said, you will have no security. They, they come in and they say that, you know, Uri comes in and says, our top priority is security for the Jewish state. We will not do anything to compromise that. And he says, you will never have security until we have our dignity. Now, I could get into a whole thing about why I didn't like that the film chose that line because actually Palestinians also need security. But it goes back to the idea that, you know, we are inextricably intertwined. Our lives, Palestinians are not going anywhere. They are here on this land to stay, barring, you know, an act of genocide, which despite all accusations to the contrary, we are not engaged in, you know, we're, we're not disappearing, they're not disappearing. We have to find a way to share this land. And the only way to do that is to shift the paradigm and break out of that us and them. We could live like this for a long time. The, the status quo really is sustainable, but that doesn't mean we should ever accept it. Yeah, yeah, right. It's not really what people, <laughs> what, what, what people want. Um, I, I sort of wonder two things um, when you speak about uh, changing, you know, a paradigm shift, uh, not to put all the blame on Netanyahu, which I like to do a lot. I am not his fan, but um, I can't think of the role that he played uh, immediately post Oslo, uh, right? As he was the opposition leader. And when Rabin was assassinated, I know that uh, Perez took over on an interim basis as, as prime minister, but, but Netanyahu then quickly uh, was swept into office uh, following um, that first election. And then I can't help but think maybe even what Gaza would look like uh, when Sharon had a plan pulling out of Gaza and then he uh, became brain dead and was in a coma uh, for so long. And then eventually Netanyahu uh, was swept into to office again um, after Olmertz was, you know, arrested and, and all that. Um I wonder how much of a paradigm shift there will be. I know Mike mentioned that Bennett is certainly a lot further to the right than Netanyahu uh, on certain areas, including annexation. But this is also a government that for the first time has an Arab party in the coalition. And what does it mean to have Ram as part of the coalition? Um, I, I know that, you know, Odeh said uh, he's probably, uh, right, he's the head of the largest Arab party uh, majority Arab party in Israel, where he talked about how um, he um, proudly voted to support uh, Herzog as president and, and hope that he could bring uh, 
Palestinians and Israelis back to the table together. Uh, what does it say that Rom is part of, of this government? Uh, I heard a representative of Meretz, certainly one of the more left-wing progressive parties in Israel, who said that they certainly got much less than they had hoped. Uh, I, I think all parties in the coalition would say the same thing, but they were tired from being on the sidelines and just yelling and screaming where they felt like they had to be at the table to really make an impact on the things that they want to make an impact on. Yeah, I think it is one of the most important things. I mean, we'll see if this um, coalition is actually even sworn in. I think the situation in Israel is so volatile and changing so quickly and 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 Bibi has been very clear that he will do everything he possibly can to torpedo it before it has the chance to to be sworn in. But let's hope. And the truth is, even if it's not sworn in, um, Ra'am being part of the coalition, regardless of whether the government ends up happening, regardless of whether it dissolves after a short time, which I think is what most Israelis expect, that is a game changer. And interestingly, it was started by by Netanyahu. To me, it's not so much about Ram. I mean, the truth is, I I have a lot of empathy for the for um, positions of the joint list. Ram is, is a fundamentalist religious party, right? Like they're anti-LGBTQ. That was one of their conditions. They're they are not a party that I identify with politically, and I'm not just talking about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Just as you know, a, a governing party, they are not anyone I would ever vote for. But it is a huge, huge shift in what is considered acceptable. It's, it's another paradigm shift, right? What's it considered acceptable within Israeli politics? Nobody's ever gonna be able to go back and say, what do you mean you're signing with, a, with an Arab uh, party into your coalition? You can't say that anymore. Bibi was ready to do it very, very publicly and Bennett did it and, and all the other parties that are in this coalition, you know, Gidon Saar and Gantz, they have all now, they are on record. That's huge. By the way, this is kind of a side point, but there is also, my understanding is the largest number of women ministers in this coalition, assuming it gets sworn in, um, more women in minister positions than have ever been in an Israeli government. And we don't need to get deep into this, but it's something that I was very struck by in the film, which is that, you know, you have Mona who kind of plays the romantic lead, I guess, and seems to have an important role. And I don't know the history. I was looking her up on Wikipedia. Um, but it, it was very striking how male the room is, right? And um, the fact that there are more women in the government, I think is very important. Um, and the other thing that I will say about this coalition, should it come to pass, God willing, in the next week, is they are not, I don't think that there is really any chance that it will make difference on the, in the realm of the conflict. Um, their, their hands are essentially tied. I mean, I, I think they'll end up being very neutral on the conflict because, you know, basically ev every party has veto power over any major changes. And so th the two sides will keep, essentially keep each other in check from changing anything about the status quo. Um, so I don't think they're gonna make anything better, but I also don't think they're gonna make anything worse on that front, which in and of itself is like, we need some time to breathe. I mean, we, Israel has not had governance basic governance for two years. We don't have a budget. We don't have, you know, hospitals don't know how to budget for their coming year. Schools, we're not functioning as a country. And so I, you know, nobody, nobody who supports this coalition is 
really happy with the coalition because how can you be? No matter where you sit on the political spectrum, you really disagree with somebody in that coalition. Um, but there's something very powerful about it at the same time and the move to legitimize the role because what I think Rahm's inclusion does is it says in a certain way, Israeli Arabs need to be part of this process. I'm using the Israeli term for Palestinian citizens of Israel, which is what most of the people I know who are that call themselves, right? But Israeli Arabs or Palestinian citizens of Israel, there's been an official statement through this process that they need to be integrated in a way that they haven't been in the past. And that's a huge shift. Do you think that that is um, going to be a, a lasting shift or, or is it more likely to be an aberration? And one of the questions that, I, one of the reasons I asked that question is, you know, one of the striking um, and dismaying um, elements of this latest flare up in violence was the, um, the, the violence that erupted in, within Green Line Israel um, between the, um, you know, Jewish citizens of Israel and um, and Palestinian citizens of Israel in places like Lod and and Haifa and and other places. Um, you know, it um, on the one hand you have this kind of like sign of 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 hope of of a you know a society that's you know moving toward you know at least inching in the direction of you know multicultural democracy, multi ethnic democracy, uh, multiracial democracy, whatever you want to call it. And then on the other hand. Um, you know, the most significant flare up of, um, of this sort of like internal violence between um, different groups than, than I remember seeing in, in some time. So we, like, which is the future? So three responses. The first is, this might be counterintuitive, but I actually think that the, the, I don't call it, the flare up, the violence, on the streets of, of Israel, of Israeli cities that you mentioned. I mean, it should go without saying that it's it's terrible. I mean, seeing synagogues burn, seeing cars burn, seeing people lynched, both Jew, Israeli Jews by Arabs and Arab Israelis by Jews, people yanked out of their cars and beaten of them to death. Um, it's terrible, right? Um, and, and, I'm, and it's not a good thing. It does point to something though, which is, I actually think that it is backlash to the progress. It's actually in certain ways, a sign of progress, right? Because whenever there is progress in anything that is controversial, you're gonna have backlash. You're gonna have people saying, so I don't wanna take it only as a sign of the negative. It's also a sign of the positive. When people feel threatened, when people feel threatened by, you know, integration of Arabs into Israeli society, you're going to have people who on both sides, Arab Palestinians who don't actually want that integration, Jews who don't, Israeli Jews who don't want that. So it actually might point to something positive, to that positive trend. That's number one. Number two, I think it's really important to keep in mind that as horrible as it was, this was not a popular uprising across the entire population. This was very small relatively speaking numbers of people. We're talking about a country of 9 million people, 6 million-ish Israelis, 2 million plus uh, uh, Palestinian citizens of Israel. Like we're talking about a few thousand people at most who were actually engaged in violence. So let's recognize how horrible it is and let's also keep it in perspective. Even with everything that was going on, 
most people were still just trying to keep, I mean, you know, I have heard, I haven't actually spoken to Palestinians as citizens of Israel, but I've heard from many friends who have been in conversation the past week, Palestinian citizens of Israel were just as shocked as their Jewish counterparts, right? In Lod and in, in Akko, they were very upset. That's the second thing, um, that just to keep it in appropriate perspective. The third thing is, and this is where I think one of the, um, a key takeaway from the last month, uh, two months or so, that I think we're going to be, we don't fully understand this yet. And I think it's going to take some time to really understand what has shifted. But I think there was a major shift in the past two months. And this, again, is from speaking to Palestinian colleagues who feel like, um, I have been hearing for years from Palestinian colleagues, a feeling of fragmentation of the Palestinian people um, that in many ways was caused by, by Israel because of you know, they were given different statuses. You have some Palestinians who live inside Israel and were given the status of citizenship, and that comes with certain rights and, and limitations, right? You have, you have uh, residents of East Jerusalem, and they have a whole other set of rights or lack thereof. You have the residents of, of West Bank and Gaza, and then the diaspora. You have five different categories, which really are not, have nothing to do with their Palestinian identity. They are all one people. They are brothers and sisters and children and parents and cousins, right? You know, every Palestinian I know has someone living in one of those other, you know, you're from the West Bank, but your cousins live in Yafo, or they live in Rafah in Gaza, or they live in America. There's not, you know, I think we as Israeli Jews, we tend to think of Palestinian society as very splintered. And what we don't see is that not necessarily intentionally, or maybe so, you know, you can analyze that. Was this intentional or was it accidental? But we created those divisions. They're not organic divisions among Palestinian people. And what I have heard over and over from Palestinians the last couple of months is this sense of unity, of peoplehood, of a cultural and national and political identity across geographical divisions, these geographical and sort of status divisions, that is very, very gratifying. I think of it very much as akin to the way that we Jews think about peoplehood, right? We see all these solidarity missions coming now through federations in the US, like groups of rabbis coming through the country talking about solidarity, unity. We feel supported when we're under fire, you're coming to support us. That's what I've heard Palestinians saying. Not that they're advocating for violence, but I'll give you a very specific example. I think it was May 18th, if I'm not mistaken. There was a general strike. Now, Israel responded, many Israelis responded saying, oh, this is, uh, it, this is Israeli Arabs supporting Hamas by striking. I don't accept that. A strike is the epitome of a of nonviolent protest. I mean, if we can't accept a strike as a legitimate form of protest, resistance, demonstration, whatever you want to call it, then, then we're basically saying, you just have to accept what we say. You can't resist at all. You can't. We want people to strike. That's what we're constantly saying. Where's the Martin Luther King, right? There was a general strike across the entire land. West Bank, Jerusalem, Gaza doesn't really have anything to strike because they're not in interaction with Israelis. And inside the Green Line, there's a deep sense of unity coming out that I think it's going to take us a while to really see what um, what impact that has. But that's what I think some of that violence on the streets in a, in a you know, that was in a negative form that I'm not endorsing the violence, but the feeling of connection, I think, was really important for Palestinians. I think 
the American Jewish community um, struggling with how to respond? And this is where we're really looking for your guidance, Leah, and really the guidance of encounter. Um, how do we, as Jews, support Israel and feel deeply connected to Israel? We'll also grieve the, this status quo, grieve the reality of many lives lost in Gaza, many children. Um, you know, I, I read a very powerful statement by an Israeli colleague who thought it was important that Haaretz posted on their front page the pictures of the uh, Palestinian children in Gaza who died in the conflict because we need to know the cost of, of this reality. Uh, whether we accept this reality or don't, we, we need to know the, the human cost of this reality in the same way that we need to see uh, the the destroyed homes and the bomb shelters that so many of our loved ones ha slept in for weeks at a time because that too is a cost of this reality. Um, part of what Encounter does, uh, right? Uh, as Mike mentioned, we both went on. Part of what Encounter does is it really introduces Jewish communal leaders to Palestinian voices in Bethlehem and Ramallah and East Jerusalem and Hebron, just to actively listen. What really struck me about my time and encounter is was not pushing a specific agenda. It was not trying to convince us of, uh, of anything, but it was in some ways created more questions for me than answers, but it understood the importance of actively listening how do we create that same opportunity for our communities here without traveling to Israel and to the territories? Uh, how do we get more people on, on all sides, those in, within our community and those outside of our community that really question, right? When we say we are proudly Zionist and also critical of what Israel does, question that possibility that you could do both. Um, when every Israeli does both multiple times a day, um, how, how do we get more people to actively listen? Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a great question. And I think you sort of said it yourself. Some of it is just holding that middle space and saying, I care deeply about Israel, but it, it's shifting the narrative. I actually think Americans have gotten a really good lesson in this the last four years. It's shifting the definition of what it means to be loyal to your country, what it means to be patriotic, what it means to care about your country. Americans, at least Americans on the left, <laughs> broadly define, got a real lesson in being able to say over the past four years, caring about my country means critiquing what my government is doing. That's what loyalty is right now, is critiquing the policies of my government. It's critiquing, not just, I'm not just talking about Trump, right? Being able to say, I'm criti I critique these policies, I critique the direction my country is going because I believe so deeply in my country and because I care so much about my country and because I'm so committed to my country and the people, all of the people who live here, that's actually what loyalty means. That's the shift that we need to, to make, right? It means recognizing that idea that we started with of you're on my side and theirs. You can only be Ali Abwawad, who's a, a well-known, um, one of the more well-known nonviolent Palestinian leader says, don't be pro-Palestinian, don't be pro-Israel, be pro-solution. That's what we're talking about here, right? It's recognizing that um, caring about the future of the Jewish people in the land of Israel means you have to, you have to care about Palestinians. 
You have to, if you care about Jews, it means recognizing, and this goes to your question, we cannot actually understand the story of the Jewish people in the land of Israel, the story of the state of Israel without understanding Palestinians. I mean, not. I, I really, I, I hesitate to draw a parallel to racial justice in the US. And I wanna say very clearly that I think there are things that we can learn from the, the whole process around racial justice in the US the last few years and the situations are not the same. So please don't think I'm trying to map one onto the other. But I do think there is one lesson which we can learn, which is this idea of hearing people's voices of representation. Can you imagine someone putting together a reading list on racial justice in the US that included only white voices, but white writers? It, it would never happen. We only have white authors. We're not going to listen to the black authors. That just wouldn't happen. That's a very concrete example of something that could change. I'll, I'll give you terrible to give this example, but I, I was in a Facebook conversation a couple of weeks ago um, with someone who's a teacher in a Jewish day school looking for a, um, a uh, putting together a summer reading list. And he asked for suggestions, you know, his, his feed is full of people like us, Jewish educators and rabbis. What do you suggest putting on this reading list about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict? And a lot of very good suggestions by Israeli, Jewish, uh, Israeli and Jewish, American Jewish authors. And I, I suggested a book by a Palestinian author, which I think is a good book for that high school students could handle. You know, it's not some sort of radical book. It's actually a book about a, a, one of the most uh, well-known Palestinian authors writing about his relationship with an Israeli Jew since the 1970s and the, the twists and turns it's taken and sort of following the history of, um, you know, since 1967 to today through his relationship with this Israeli Jew. That's a fascinating story. Why isn't that on? reading list. He said, he said, I'd love to include it, but it's too controversial. I can't do that in my Jewish day school. That's an example of where the American Jewish community can really shift, include Palestinian poetry, include Palestinian readings. Maybe you invite a Palestinian speaker. And it's about educators and rabbis and communal leaders changing the way we talk. It's a, incorporating that. Sharon Browse, Rabbi Sharon Browse is a great example, saying this is what it means, teaching our students that, teaching our congregants that. That's a really important shift. It's a long game. It's not, not going to affect anything on the ground here and now, but it, I think it has a look. It can have a really important impact on discourse in the long term. It strikes me. I mean, it strikes me that that you know there's there's such a a, a high hill to climb uh, when it comes to that. Some of that, you know, uh, even even acknowledging the you know reality that there is a palestinian people right uh, the the american jewish community you know continues to refuse to use the terminology palestinian citizens of israel you know consistently calling them uh, arab israelis and 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 also uh um you know, they might uh they might from time to time talk about the palestinian people but don't acknowledge them uh, as a people so they'll say palestinians but not the palestinian people um i i you know we um uh, we came out with a statement during the conflict as a congregation and, and we, you know, used the terms, you know, Palestine and Palestinian people and, and, and that sort of thing. And you know, fortunately I didn't get a lot of uh, heat for that in particular, but I did notice that virtually no other Jewish organization that I saw locally at least was using those terminology. And then someone, you know, reached out to me specifically to say, thank you for using those terms because most of the Jewish organizations that we hear from won't even use the term Palestinian. 
So it's not even a matter of like not listening to their voices. It's denying the reality that, that, that these are uh, people that have a legitimate existence. There's an amazing quote um, by Abraham Joshua Heschel, Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel. He says, I actually have it on my wall up here. He says, our sight is suffused with knowing instead of feeling painfully the lack of knowing what we see. The principle to be kept in mind is to know what we see rather than to see what we know. The principle to be kept in mind is to know what we see rather than to see what we know. You're talking about listening. I think listening, seeing, really understanding Palestinian reality. It is hard work. You know, there's, there's such, we have such a strong confirmation bias. Right. We, we assume that we already we see something and then we assume that we know how to understand what we're seeing rather than really making the effort to look and say, what are these people's lived experience? What is their reality? And every community is going to be able to do that in different ways and at different paces. You know, your community, it sounds like, is in a different place than other communities, which can't even say the word Palestinian. Um, and it is slow work. And I think that you know one of our organizational values is, um, or two of them, are responsibility and steadfastness. We have a responsibility as Jews, if we care about the future of the Jewish people in the land of Israel, we care about the future of the state of Israel, we have to embrace our own agency. We have to stop pointing fingers and saying, well, the Palestinians didn't accept the deals, you know, they were offered it so many times and they didn't take it like, you know, and, and uh, Hamas is constantly shooting rockets. And like, why should we, why should we bother? Why should, you know, if they're trying to kill their own people till they're screwing their own people over. No, like we have to say, sure, there's plenty of plane to go around, but we are going to focus on what we can do. And one of the things we can do is to listen and to see, and it's the role of Jewish leaders, I think, to, push their communities at the speed that those communities can change. I don't know if you ever use the language of adaptive leadership, um, but they talk about, you know, what, it, what is leadership? It's disappointing people at a pace that they can handle. <laughs> Making people productively uncomfortable. So you use the word Palestinian from the pulpit and maybe somebody gets mad and you have to field those questions from your congregants or maybe from your donors, or maybe you're even worried when you put a Palestinian, a, a book by a Palestinian author on a syllabus or on a reading list that you're gonna get pushback from the parents in the community who have a lot of money and are supporting the day school. And every person has to take those risks at their own pace. But I, I think um, Jewish leaders have a really important role to play here in shifting their communities and it means taking risks. It means being willing to, to have the courage to do that because it, it is so much easier to not. It's so much easier to say, you know what, this is where I'm going to get pushback from my community. I'm, I'm going to focus on something else where I'm not going to get the pushback. That's the only way to change. The only way to make change. And whatever, if you're able to use the word Palestinians, the next step is to say, you know what, actually, we're going to invite some Palestinians. We're going to listen to them. You don't have to agree with them. You have to understand them because their lives are intertwined with the lives of the people living in Israel, who we really care about. I wonder, Mike and I were talking before about the generational relationship to Israel, certainly among the American Jewish community or the North American Jewish community, that you have uh, our parents' generation, which their relationship to Israel is sort of a post 
1967, post Six Day War. Uh, everyone is trying to get Israel, uh, and we need to support Israel at all costs. For for Israel, it is is victim. And I want to acknowledge, right, that that still in some ways very much exists surrounded by Hamas and Hezbollah, right, that sort of thing. Um, you have us who grew up in the Oslo uh, idea of Israel. I grew up as a peacenik. My parents are peacenik. And that's the Israel I still believe, an Israel uh, that will thrive when there are two states. And you have millennials and many Gen Zers who are skeptical of Israel, um, because again, hate to place blame because the Israel that they know and remember is really a, a Netanyahu Israel, is an Israel that continues to build settlements, is an Israel that continues to cease to build any relationship with its Palestinian neighbors. I worry about how do we strengthen that, the millennial, the Gen Z relationship with Israel when they are skeptical of what some in the Israeli government are doing. It's a very, very good question. I think it needs to start. I mean, we're talking about listening. <laughs> it needs to start with listening to them. Um, and I think you are pointing to a shift that the, if we don't want to lose those younger generations, we need to start. And by the way, I, I am very worried about losing them because going back to this peoplehood thing, like, I don't want to lose the connection with American Jews. I was, I had a lot of questions around, um, you know, I, I met with a few solidarity missions this week, and I, I was really gratified that some of them um, chose to, I think they all met with Palestinian citizens of Israel. Um, and I was glad that some of them chose to meet with people from, at least from East Jerusalem, Palestinians, right? But um those are the kinds of shifts that we're going to need to make if we don't want to lose the younger generation. We need to listen to their, their feedback. We need to take it seriously, not go into a defensive posture and say, but, oh, but we had a, a, a curriculum about the Israel and Palestine and the, the occupation. They don't feel like they're being heard. They don't feel like they're getting what they need. We need to recognize that. That's their truth. Like, that is how they're feeling. If we if we don't want to lose them, we cannot dig in our heels and say we're going to stick to sort of the old Hasbara advocacy. It, it's it's you know shooting our what's the cutting off our nose to spite our face shooting shooting ourselves in the foot like we're going to lose the younger generation and and it's, I'm not going to say rightfully so because I, I really don't want to lose them but they are telling us they are telling our generation you need to listen to us you need to listen to Palestinians you need to recognize the reality. They're right, they're right, and we need to learn from them. Um, and, and I don't think that the breach is unbridgeable. Alex Thompson has a great study where he talks about people disengaging. And some of them are disengaging because they're just kind of, they don't care. But a lot of them are disengaging because they are angry. Angry anger is a form of caring. You don't get angry about something when it doesn't matter to you. You get angry about something when it really matters. And we should be engaging that. We should be recognizing they actually do care about their Jewish upbringing. They care about the Jewish people. They care about Israel and what's happening here, but they're not willing to accept we're just gonna stick to sort of the old Hasbara party line. They want a different approach and we should be giving it to them. Like our Jewish organizations, our Jewish day schools, synagogues, camps, 
et cetera, Hillel's should be giving it to them. And there are, there is a lot of good work happening. Hillel International is a great masterclass at Israel. I just talked to the person who's running it and, and they're bringing Palestinians to speak because senior educators on Israel need to know what Palestinians think. Um, there's good work that's happening. You know, uh, this conversation um, and, and your reflections there reminded me of this, um, this, this line in a column that uh, Michelle Goldberg wrote back in 2018, um, I, I guess not long after uh, uh, the Trump administration recognized Jerusalem as uh, the capital of Israel. Um, and, uh, and it's haunted me ever since. She says, um, someday Trump will be gone with hope for a two-state solution nearly dead, current trends suggest that a Jewish minority will come to rule over a largely disenfranchised Muslim majority in all the land under Israel's control. A rising generation of Americans may see an apartheid state with a Trump square in its capital and wonder why it's supposed to be our friend. Um, and, and, and I wanted to uh, just uh, bring that up, you know, in, in a conversation about, you know, engaging the next generation, because I think that those are the um, challenges that are that are really present. You know, she's talking about the broader American public, but I think that you see that maybe all the more so within the Jewish community and especially the younger segments of the Jewish community, which which tend to be more progressive. Um, but it also speaks to this idea that uh, that, you know, for a lot of folks, um, there's a lot of cause for despair uh, in Israel and in, in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Um, Oslo, you know, the, the movie kind of has a happy ending because they get a deal, um, but we all know how the history unfolds. And so it's kind of, um, you know, embedded in a, a much more tragic narrative. Um, which you know ha has repeated itself just in in recent weeks, and I'm I'm wondering, Leah, um, you seem to be in you know working with Encounter in the hope business that there are bridges to build, that there are relationships to forge, um, that there is uh, peace and coexistence um, and mutual respect and um, and and supporting both sides, um, all of that is possible. So, what is it that gives you hope, and what can you offer to us that might uh, enable us to be on uh, on the side of hope? So, I think that there are lots of reasons for hope um, and optimism, and most of those have to do with the extraordinary people on the ground who maybe whose voices aren't as loud or their voices actually may be very loud, but we don't hear them. They're not in the media. You know, I think the media tends to go toward extreme voices, tends to go towards strident voices. It doesn't show the day-to-day -day hard work that people are putting in. Um, it's less sexy, but there are both Palestinians and Israelis who are wor really working hard um, toward a better future. And when I say a better future, I mean a future in which all inhabitants of this land, Palestinian, Jewish, Israeli, Muslim, Christian, all inhabitants of this land can live in security, which is despite the film's sort of emphasis on Israeli security, Palestinians are not living in security. They're getting killed over the last several decades at higher rates than Israeli Jews. Um, all People in this land can live in dignity. All people in this land can live with rights, with equality, with freedom. 
there are people working for that. And that gives me hope and it gives me optimism. But I actually think the question is not about hope. The right question, it's an important question. But the more important question for me is about responsibility because the only people who really need to know about hope are the people who have the luxury of giving up, of saying, you know what, I've got other things to think about. This is too tough. We're not going to make any progress. I'm going to detach, disengage, you know, focus on something that where I can actually make a real difference. And I see that happening among American Jews who really have the ability to, to disengage because they can. Um, and I see that among Israeli Jews who are, you know, sort of accept what you kind of laid out, Michael, earlier on in the conversation of like, look, we'll we'll deal with the episodes of violence. We're going to accept that as a fact of life. It's not going to change, and we'll enjoy the beach in the, you know, in the in-between times, which are pretty long. We can go seven years without a war in Gaza. Um, but there are a lot of people living in this land, and I would say this includes basically almost all Palestinians wherever they live, and for that matter. You know, Israeli Jews living on the southern border, for example, who, unlike, you know, we, we tend to react when there are rockets on Tel Aviv, on the center of the country, that's all of a sudden terrible. But there are rockets nonstop in Sterot and Ashkelon and Ashdod, farther north you go, it's, it's less, right? But there are people who are living with this all the time. And in, many of them are the ones pushing hardest for a diplomatic solution, which the government has been ignoring. So from my perspective, you know, we can choose to opt out, but I actually feel, and we may say, well, we're full of despair, we're gonna opt out, but there are lots of people who don't have the luxury of opting out. And I feel a responsibility, particularly as somebody who made a, an active choice to, to make my life here, unlike most Palestinians and Israelis who don't have a choice, they don't have another passport, they have nowhere else to go, despite what our fantasies might, you know, both, on both sides, Palestinians kind of in their fantasies, wishing all Israeli Jews would just kind of disappear, not be killed, just disappear. Plenty of Israeli Jews, you know, I, I think there's a, there are these fantasies, but no one's going anywhere. And that's a personal obligation that I feel, right? That I feel that I have a responsibility, but I hope people who care about this place and who care about the people who live here, they don't feel hopeful, but that they still feel that there is a responsibility. And so they need to not, um, to not opt out, to not disengage, and to do what they can to work toward a better future for this place and people that they care so much about. I appreciate that so much. Um, that is our, our, our goal. That that is the, the breach that that we are signing uh, as Jews um, to not opt out, to engage, um, so that the Israel uh, which we dreamed of as a people for so long. Um, which at times we see glimpses of, um, but it is not yet the, the, the true reality that, that we dream of. Will God will in one day um, be a, a dream come true um, as long as we all commit to, to not opting out. Uh, Leah, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, if you want more information about the work that Leah does for Encounter, you can check out encounterprograms.org. Uh, and it's really our hope and prayer that we continue this conversation uh, and we continue to not just speak, but actively listen and listen to really all voices. Um, this conversation began really reflecting on Oslo almost 30 years later. I pray for the day when, when the next version of Oslo, uh, God willing, a more successful version will come to be. 
uh, and it will only come to be when um, we listen to each other more. Until next time, I'm Rabbi Jesse Olitsky. And I'm Rabbi Michael Knopf. And may we experience peace for all one day soon. Take Amen. care, everyone. <laughs>